welcome to Useful Ideas. I'm Katie Halper. And I'm Mary Matte. How are you doing? I'm well. I'm well. How are you? Good. Good. I mean, it's a dark time. It's a scary time. A lot of people cheering for, um, you know, no-fly zones, which I find scary personally, trying to stay sane, trying to keep hopeful, trying to just control the things I can control, stuff like right. that. That's right. What about you? By the way, Katie, if you're looking for some levity to uh, deal with the constant battle cries for a no-fly zone, there's a funny episode of Curb Your Enthusiasm about a no-fly zone. Oh, really? Yeah. It's classic Larry David where no-fly zone becomes a term for under for men's underwear with no, with no fly. Oh, got it. Okay. For anyone out yeah. there who's shook understandably by the no-fly zone talk right now, there's always Curb Your Enthusiasm to ease yeah. the pain a little bit. Always. I've been watching a show, by the way. I finished it. It's called In From the Cold. It's very Cold War-ish. It's about a Russian agent, basically, a Russian spy who uh, I'm not giving anything away. This is all in the first episode. It's kind of a weird premise, but she's just like a she's a mom, an American, seeming American. Uh, she takes her daughter, who's an ice skater, uh, on a trip she's like a chaperone the daughter is going to madrid to do an ice skating tournament this woman the mom jenny somehow the cia guy discovers that she's out there and gets him her to work for the cia we think again and then it's a flashback between jenny today jenny the american and anya the younger woman when she's in russia it's an appropriate thing to watch that was very appropriate yeah Sounds very appropriate. It's good. It's like eight episodes, I think. Okay, nice. That's uh, ten, that's yeah. manageable. Yeah. Yeah. Good binge. Yeah. I watched them a season of Curb, and then that's kind of been it for me. Yeah. That's the only thing I've, I've managed to see, but I'm missing out. I haven't seen the new season of Ozarks. Oh, I saw that one. So I'm really looking forward to. Yeah. I have to catch up. I'm not going to be able to, but anyway. Yeah. I'll get to it eventually. So should we just get into the four basic food groups? Yeah. Speaking of basic necessities, you have television. And then you have your four basic food groups. So let's get right. to it. Let's do, let's it. do it. So this week I have Democrats suck. So let me start with actually a Democrat that does not suck as a way to show how the rest of the Democrats do suck. And the Democrat that does not suck is Congress member Ilhan Omar. Yes. Who just said something very brave uh, in warning against flooding Ukraine with U.S. weapons, where she says the consequences of flooding Ukraine with billion dollars in weapons likely not limited to just military specific equipment, but also including small arms and ammo are unpredictable and likely disastrous, especially when they're given to paramilitary groups without accountability. And that is a direct reference to the Azov Battalion, which is a neo-Nazi militia that is incorporated into the Ukrainian armed forces. The only country in the world where, which has a neo-Nazi militia formally in its military like that, and Ilhan is basically standing alone among Congress members and warning of the consequences of that, even though there's a law on the books that bans assistance to the Azov Battalion. But we all know that when U.S. weapons make it over to the recipient country, that it's very hard to control who actually gets the weapons. And U.S. weapons have ended up in the Azov Battalion's hands. And in fact, there was just a uh, some photographs came out this week of Azov members using and, and uh, training with NATO weapons. So that's already happening. So she's warning about the consequences of that. She was really attacked for this statement. I thought it was very, very brave. 
and very important because right now the U.S. policy is with full Democratic Party support, along with Republicans, obviously, to flood Ukraine with weapons with no accountability. And meanwhile, you have people coming in from around the world to join the fight against Russia there. A certain percentage of those people are, I think it's plausible to say, far-right extremists because there are a lot of far-right extremists inside Ukraine, including inside the Ukrainian military. So she's warning of the dangers of this, not just for Ukraine, but for around the world when these extremists go back to their home countries or go elsewhere. So it's very, very dangerous. And what are Democrats doing instead? They're essentially ignoring these concerns and they've just passed or they're pushing through a new measure over $10 billion for Ukraine, including $6.5 billion in military aid, which includes the kind of weapons that Ilhan Omar is warning about. And one of the ma major proponents is Chuck Schumer. And let's hear what he has to say about these new weapons and how he describes Ukraine right now. There's a Holocaust going on. When you see that people are lined up on buses to just leave a conflict zone, and Putin's artillery shells those buses. That is just below humanity, below dignity. We also need to give the brave Ukrainian fighting forces, who are doing much better than anyone ever imagined, the, the arms they need, whether it be javelins or stingers or anything else. They need these arms simply to defend themselves against brutal Russian aggression. He says that there's a Holocaust going on, which I'm sorry, no matter how much you might oppose the Russian invasion. And again, as we've said repeatedly, it's criminal, it's illegal, it's murderous. Unjustified, yeah. Unjustified. Unjustified to call it a Holocaust, though, to call it a Holocaust, though, is to really demean the Holocaust. And especially at a time when the U.S. is supporting actually so far an even way more murderous atrocity in Yemen, where Saudi Arabia is killing Yemenis in mass numbers with U.S. made weapons and U.S. intelligence, which uh, Chuck Schumer and the rest of the Democrats were on board with for a long time, which you know now some of them oppose. But long after the damage has been done in the form of tens of thousands of Yemenis killed and re and hundreds of thousands of refugees and um, people lacking the basics that they need to survive. So it's offensive for Schumer to say that Russia is committing a Holocaust when actually the U.S. is helping Saudi Arabia commit something that has so far been much worse. And also he talks about Russia firing on civilian buses. If that's true, then he's right. It's a war crime, although we should wait, I think, for evidence before accepting what Chuck Schumer says, because so many claims coming out of Ukraine are just hard to verify. But if he is being factual, then yes, then Russia is committing a war crime. Just as the U.S. commits war crimes in all the countries that it, tar that it targets, and just as Saudi Arabia commits war crimes, too. Not that that excuses a Russian war crime, but it just it it speaks to the lack of moral authority that Chuck Schumer has to denounce it if he's supporting his own government's war crimes and other government's war crimes elsewhere. And then he talks about how we need to flood Ukraine with more weapons. And as we've talked about a lot, Katie, the point you make is just like, even if you have no concern or care whatsoever for any of Russia's grievances with NATO expansion and the, the war in the Donbass for the last eight years, all that stuff, just from the point of view of Ukraine's well-being, what is the point of flooding it with more weapons when Russia is so overwhelmingly superior militarily? It just means you're going to prolong this war and sentence more Ukrainians to die. Right. But right now, that's the Democratic Party policy is to send in more weapons and thus 
send off more Ukrainians to die. Yeah, it's sadistic. I mean, it's it's sadistic on the part of the people who are rationally doing this. So like members of the government who realize that. And then it's just like ill informed on the part of people who are cheering it on. And I don't want to like vilify people cheering it on who think that they're protecting Ukrainians. I understand why they think that the media is making it seem like that. The media, as we showed on Monday morning, is literally cheering on a no fly zone, which will potentially lead to nuclear war. So I understand why people are thinking that, but really the only way to help Ukrainians is to use our voices to demand a ceasefire through diplomacy. As Philip Bennis points out at the Institute for Policy Studies, every war ends in a, um, ends through diplomacy. So the only question is how much war before that happens and how much bloodshed. And shout out, huge shout out to Ilhan Omar. I saw her on Democracy Now! And I honestly couldn't believe she was saying what she was saying. She was talking about history. She was talking about Afghanistan. She, unlike Max Boot and Hillary Clinton, who point to Afghanistan somehow as a, as a teachable moment, uh, whose takeaway is that we should be arming Ukraine. She actually points to it as a teachable moment whose takeaway is that we shouldn't be. Um, so she, she, I urge everyone to check out her appearance on this week's Democracy Now! It was really great. Um, okay, so let's go to Republican suck. Now, this Republican suck, this is almost more of a, like a Republicans are fun. And for that, I'm going to a letter released by uh, Donald Trump. It was a letter sent to Lester Holt. This was in advance of, uh, of Bill Barr's memoir, of his time in the Trump administration on Tuesday, NBC's Lester Holt sat down with the former attorney general to talk about his time as the nation's top cop. I'm reading at CNN. Ahead of the airing of the interview, former President Donald Trump sent a three-page letter to Holt, repeatedly criticizing Barr while also continuing to push the 2020 election fraud conspiracy. Axios obtained the letter, which you can read for yourself here. Okay, so first of all, uh, let's just look at the actual letter. Okay, so it says, Dear Mr. Holt, and then Trump has taken a pen, it looks more like a magic marker, a magic marker crossed out Mr. Holt and written Lester. So it's kind of, I think maybe he thinks it's kind of an alpha move, like he's taking him down a notch. He's not going to call him Mr. Holt, the usual respectful salutation. He's calling him Lester. Bill Barr cares more about being accepted by the corrupt Washington media and elite than serving the American people. He was slow, lethargic, and I realized early on that he never had what it takes to make a great attorney general. When the radical left Democrats threatened to hold him in contempt and even worse, to impeach him, he became virtually worthless to law and order and election integrity. They broke him just like a trainer breaks a horse. Bill Barr was a big disappointment to me as attorney general. He was afraid to act and usually didn't. I would imagine that if the book is anything like him, it will be long, slow, and very boring. I made many great appointments during my administration and we accomplished more than most administrations could even dream of, but Bill Barr was not one of my better picks. He crumbled under pressure and bowed to the radical left and that is not acceptable. Now he's groveling to the media, hoping to gain acceptance that he doesn't deserve. And then he goes over, you know, he, he says again that he was, that the election was rigged. Now the witch hunt continues with shifty Adam Schiff, Rhino Liz Cheney, and others on what I call the unselect committee. In the long run, the American people will win. Sincerely, Donald Trump. I like that. Shifty Adam Schiff, Rhino Liz Cheney. Trump, I guess, was a little bit triggered, and he got some stuff off his chest. Yeah, what do what you think? A, what? Man, it must be tough to be inside that guy's head. Because here, actually, Bill Barr was one of the best things that happened to Trump. 
Bill Barr came in and essentially saw that the FBI and the DOJ was being weaponized to undermine Trump via the Russia investigation with this fake allegation of a conspiracy between Trump and Russia. And Bill Barr actually came in and reined that in. He basically got the Mueller team to stop delaying and come out with a report. And he got that report out to the public. And instead of recognizing that Bill Barr uh, did him a favor by basically making sure that the Mueller team wound down and got their report released, which showed just how this whole thing about a Trump-Russia conspiracy was a scam, uh, Trump feels that Bill Barr was insufficiently uh, obedient because he didn't go along with the uh, stop the steal uh, fantasies that Trump had. And Barr refused to go along with that. And he that's why he left the administration early. And so now Barr is getting some media attention because he has a book out. And I guess Trump is jealous. He wants the spotlight for yeah. himself. He doesn't think Bill Barr deserves it. Even that's though awesome. Bill Barr actually did him a big favor just by being a attorney general willing to uh, get, you know, for a while, Bill Barr was like the media's number one enemy because he put out the Mueller report and made it public. And he was willing to say that this whole thing was a scam. And he was also willing to appoint John Durham, a special prosecutor, to investigate the origins of the Russia investigation because he knew that so much fraud went into it. So actually, Bill Barr, I think, was protecting Trump's interest. But because Bill Barr wouldn't go along with Trump's fantasies about the election was stolen from him, right. now he's an enemy, too. And now to the point where Trump's writing this outraged letter to Lester Holt. It's, it's pretty funny. Yeah. So that's our Republican sucks for the week. Yeah, well, Republicans are Republicans are fun. They are also fun, fun. Yeah, they're funny. Yeah. yeah. So what do we got for isn't that weird? So for isn't that weird, people spent nine thousand dollars on Pixelmon NFTs. Then they saw the art. Pixelmon hoped to be the Pokemon of NFT games and raised seventy million dollars to make that happen. Then its art dropped. Oh my god! What a world. It's meant to be the Pokemon of NFT games set in the world of Eden. Pixelmon is to be an open world RPG where Pixelmon creatures are caught, traded, and sold as non-fungible tokens, NFTs. Upon the game's launch at the end of the year, Pixelmon NFT holders are to be given land, which they can use to create living spaces or become in-game merchants by setting up a shop. To fund the project, Pixelmon developers released a collection of 10,000 Pixelmon NFTs in February. They managed to raise $70 million, a budget usually associated with blockbuster video games. But the project hit a roadblock. After raising all that money, the team unveiled the Pixelmon that would inhabit the world. The project has been a laughing stock on social media ever since. All right, so here are some of the Pixelmons that they used to advertise these NFTs to get people to buy on. We have a, uh, what is that? Kind some of kind of dinosaur dinosaur maybe? some kind of beast and we got a baby dragon now that's kind of cute it's a red baby dragon okay it's moving baby dragon around. of the fire tribe oh this is cute this is a tatsumaki, tatsumaki the, the air, air dragon. dragon that's a really cute one gorgeous gorgeous right? beautiful Little beautiful horns. mane and yeah. horns yeah wings yes great wings then on february 26 came the reveal upon reveal you see what nft you got so here's a look at someone. Wow. Someone tweeted, well, Pixelmon just made over $70 million. And when reveal happened, this is what everyone got. So wow. that looks like a painted turtle, kind of. What is a turtle with a, a turtle scarecrow? What the hell? Yeah, a turtle scarecrow. This, I don't even know what that is. 
like we got like a, a, a red, a round red head on top of like a cow body. Some of these, you can't even see what they are. They look like the images have been erased. I yeah. kind of like this one. What's this like a chimpanzee? Uh huh. <laughs> That's kind of cute. Let's see, Pixelmon expectation. That's a good one. Is that supposed to be bad? It's a flying dinosaur. We got two dragons. Those uh, are sign good. me up. Yeah, I'll pay. Just sign me up. Those are yeah. good. Those are worth it. Yeah. Okay. Then reality. Then these are the real ones. Yeah, they really suck. They. I don't even. Know. Some of them are just unintelligible. That one's kind of cool. I don't know. Some of them aren't so bad, but they're certainly not. What the hell is that? I mean, I don't even know. So the, my problem is, if you were, if you were to ask me to explain what is an NFT. Yeah. Or what is what or what even is cryptocurrency? Honestly, I, I I'm one of those people I can't do it. I'm I'm not in that world yet, and I'm hoping uh, yeah. to not be. But man, oh man, it's just stuff like this makes you think like, what else is a scam? You know? Right. What other things am I funding? Well, that's weird. That's certified yeah. weird. How about terrible, uh, Katie? What we got okay. for isn't that terrible? All right. So for isn't that terrible? So my my friend uh, Joshua Joshua Bregman, who people can follow at Josh Bregman on Twitter, tweeted out, "I'm old enough to remember when New York artists were mostly against nuclear holocaust." Now, why did he tweet that? Because he was quote tweeting another tweet, um, and the tweet was, "New York artists hold a campaign with a request to make a no-fly zone over Ukraine. Paper airplanes calling to stop Putin were thrown from all the floors of the Guggenheim Museum." Okay, so let's just play this. So. What we see here are people uh, throwing paper airplanes from the various uh, floors of the Guggenheim. It's a pretty compelling visual image, you know, people coordinating this and then their little white paper airplanes on the ground. The people there gave out uh, flyers and th this was a group of uh, Ukrainian artists. Their demands were thus. They handed out these flyers. It said, this jet is made of paper, but what if it were steel and carried bombs over the heads of the ones you love? Right now, Russia is making deliberate efforts to blow up the largest nuclear plant in Europe in order to wipe out the Ukrainian population. This would give Putin control over Ukrainian land, but that is not the end. Russia wants to move its nuclear arsenals to the Ukrainian-Polish border and push its army further west. Putin has openly said this many times. This is no longer a local conflict. Act now to save the world. Demand. Ask President Biden to declare a no-fly zone over Ukraine. Protect the sky over Ukraine. Full embargo on Russia. Boycott Russian influence in cultural and political institutions. For, starting with the boycotting um, Russian influence on uh, cultural and political institutions, people will be happy to know that certain orchestras are refusing to perform Tchaikovsky, even though he was actually Ukrainian. As people know, people are pouring their vodka down the drain. And uh, in terms of the no-fly zone, it's nice to see these artists demanding it. It's a little weird. It's a little off-brand because uh, I think of artists as more erring on the side of peace. But again, I think a lot of people don't get what a no-fly zone would do. Aaron, let them know. What would a no-fly zone do? Well, that's the problem that it sounds such like a, it sounds great. No fly in a zone. So yeah. no military jets can bomb people. Sounds great. That's let's great, have no, yeah. let's have no fly. Awesome. The problem is it really should be called world war three zones because, because it doesn't mean no one flies. It means actually the militaries of two nuclear powers fly. So if Russia flies, that means the U S military uh, bombers will fly and shoot them down and then we'll have world war three. Right. So uh, that's really what it should be called, this World War Three zone. 
that's what it would, it would entail uh, when it comes to a war zone with both the U.S. and Russia involved. But people don't know that, you know, so or at least some people don't know that. Some people know that and still want to risk World War Three right. anyway. But uh, for most people who are asked the question, like in polls and stuff, they don't know that no fly zone doesn't mean that nobody flies. It means that if Russia flies, the U.S. will fly, too, and then they'll shoot each other and right. we'll have World War Three. So that's instead of artists against the war, it's kind of artists for the war. Yeah. Oh, yeah. The last time that I can remember there was an internationally enforced no-fly zone. I'm sure there's been more since, but the last major one was Libya in 2011, where the U.S. went to the U.N. and said, look, we want to prevent a potential massacre by Qaddafi's forces in Benghazi. We have intelligence showing that he wants to do that. So just give us a no-fly zone and we're going to stop the massacre and that's it. And the U.S. even explicitly went to Russia and said, yeah, we're not doing regime change here. We just want to know fly zone to protect the people of Benghazi. So Russia did not block the UN measure. They let it pass. The US got their no fly zone and the US went and turned Libya into a destroyed country because they went ahead and, and did regime change. And then later on, it emerged that their claims about a potential massacre in Benghazi were essentially mass, uh, manufactured. A British parliamentary inquiry found no evidence for that. So did Amnesty International, the, the, the threat that Gaddafi was going to commit a massacre in Benghazi. So that's the recent history of a no-fly zone. It's meant for Libya, a destroyed country ruled by rival militias, the rise of ISIS and other sectarian death squads there. And so that's why a no-fly zone, it sounds great, but on the, in reality, on the ground, it leads to a lot of death and suffering. I, but anyway, was, Guggenheim, anyway, yeah, Guggenheim yeah. artists, you know, fly those paper planes. Yeah, fly those paper planes, yeah. yeah. Anyway, it just feels like the world is very upside down right now. All righty. So that was it. Those are our four basic food groups. We're so excited to have joining us Afshin Ratanzi, who is a British broadcaster, journalist, and author. Uh, his show, Going Underground, is on the RT network, which is uh, more uh, difficult to find than usual. Price of freedom, Katie. The price of freedom. Yeah. For freedom, we have to uh, crack down on any media that is tied to Russia and that dares to air a perspective that's not firmly in lockstep with the U.S. national security state. So right. to fight tyranny, cut off free speech. Yeah, we got to fight it on the airwaves, I guess. The irony, of course, is that um, he's been extremely critical of Putin. So all the more reason to get him off the airwaves. <laughs> you got to do it. Yeah, it's true because he doesn't. So he's he's really inconvenient because not only is he on a Russian-backed TV network, but he's not acting in the way that U.S. propaganda wants a Russian-backed uh, TV network to act. He's actually being critical of Russia, and he's allowing on on a show going underground many critiques of Russian policy. People even denouncing the invasion, like Medea Benjamin. So that's right. very inconvenient to this narrative that the reason we need to ban. RT is because all it does is air Russian propaganda, right. which yeah. even if that were true, it's either you believe in free speech or you don't. Right, exactly, right. So even if that were that true, it still wouldn't be an advantage, but yeah. All right, well, without any further ado, let us, let us bring him on. Afshin Matanzi, thank you for joining us. Thank you for inviting me. What an amazing uh, podcast this is. Uh, trying, to, trying to be fair, balanced, and impartial. I know you have been... Uh, uh, all through. Well, nothing that we've experienced, uh, I think, can compare to what you've been going through at RT. Talk to us about 
the climate right now for you as a host of a major show on RT? Your network is facing censorship around the world. What What's going on? I mean, obviously, anything I'm suffering is nothing like what the children of Ukraine are clearly suffering. Uh, even if one doesn't believe everything that NATO nation media says, uh, the pictures of uh, this uh, Russian operation, uh, as they call it, special operation, as uh, uh, anyone, uh, I think, uh, uh, impartial would call it an invasion, uh, the pictures are, are appalling and nothing that I'm suffering, nothing that even Julian Assange, who's imprisoned up the road here, uh, is suffering compared to the plight of all those children and the memories all these people will have for generations of what's going on in, in these past few hours. But as regards RT in Britain, we still have our license to broadcast. I'm not sure whether I'm supposed to support the British Prime Minister Boris Johnson, who uh, has made a name for himself as a libertarian for a long time, very keen to uh, oppose calls by uh, other politicians, notably the British Labour Party, which is um, uh, firmly Blairite in perspective, as seen by most analysts, saying that the official regulator, I suppose the equivalent in the United States would be the FCC. We have one called Ofcom. Uh, they, it's up to them. You could go to split politics from uh, broadcast regulation and media freedom. Suddenly, however, the uh, regulator has opened a huge number of investigations, not into the news stations that uh, have been sanctioned and have been complained about by them far more than RT in recent years, but against RT. So uh, we're in the peculiar situation here where obviously in Europe, where press freedom is now over, uh, there is no RT able to be broadcast. RT France are bringing in uh, uh, some kind of appeal. You think, uh, you know, I think I have a Delacroix Liberty leading the paper uh, people uh, copy behind me. I mean, you think in France you'd have a free media. Uh, but um, they're trying to bring some kind of appeal against the censorship right across the continental Europe of a free media. In Britain, we have the license, but it's Google that have taken us down from YouTube. So technically, um, you know, th things are OK. But of course, um, you know, we have that uh, trombo guilty by suspicion, you know, situation in London, whereby everyone is tarred for giving any context, as I think maybe even a guest said on yours, it's like if you start talking about the Treaty of Versailles and Winston Churchill's killing of 250,000 people by sanctions, I think one of the first times on the Rhineland in 1919 ahead of World War II, somehow you're excusing Hitler. Well, it's like that now. If you give any context, and I know you've been giving context on useful idiots, uh, you are a useful idiot. And what is the uh, what happened with RT America? That's just done. Well, I hear that RT America will be resurrected because, after all, I mean, even when um, I mean, wherever I've been, whether it be the BBC during the Iraq War or wherever, we always come under pressure. Al Jazeera Arabic, huge pressure during the Iraq War for being seen as a somehow pro-Islamist and all the rest of it. Uh, RT America, it was a production company that has been closed down in Washington and in the other bureaus. So what's to stop another production company uh, again starting up and uh, again producing programs? Obviously huge amounts of pressures clearly must have been uh, put on the managing director of that production company supplying programs under the RT America brand. So hopefully it will come back and uh, you know, you, unlike in Britain, do have a first amendment. So theoretically, 
uh, this, it, it is about that. But of course, private interest. This is why we're banned here on Freeview and for broadcast in Britain, not because of British political regulation, but because as so often happens, media ownership uh, actually is the intermediary between our expressions of freedom and uh, and the wider population, as it does in the US when DirecTV and Dish TV obviously took RT America down. On your show, Going Underground, you've been very critical of the Russian invasion of Ukraine. You just had on Medea Benjamin of Code Pink, who condemned the invasion on your show. You yourself had on a former Russian lawmaker who you challenged uh, about the invasion of Ukraine. Have you faced any kind of internal pressure to uh, moderate your position, to say anything in defense of Russia and not be critical? Vladimir Putin is actually in the room, by the way. <laughs> um, obviously not, and we haven't. But then on the other hand, as Noam Chomsky would say, uh, censorship doesn't really often work that way. So questions about censorship, have I been you know, subtly told, look, you've got to do this and so on? We haven't. And of course, in that way, maybe Moscow authorities are very keen to see the fact that they haven't said anything to us. I mean, I over the past eight years with going underground, sometimes I would want some element of, not of guidance, but an opinion. And uh, I was told by my bosses uh, for, for this production that we do for, for going underground, look, uh, we can't tell you anything. You could then go out to the press and say, Moscow's telling you what to say. Very sensitive about that, but absolutely not at all. And uh, which one can only surmise. I mean, you mentioned Medea Benjamin and, and the kind of, uh, programs that happen to be being done by going underground recently, which are hugely damning and critical of Vladimir Putin. Presumably, NATO nations don't want these programs to be translated in Russian and going back to the Russian population. <laughs> I mean, you know, the mind boggles at uh, uh, the strategy in terms of media restrictions and the ending of media in Europe, a free media in Europe, ex uh, explicitly in, in Europe and in Britain. And as we know, you don't have to quote the Washington Post's democracy dies in darkness. We know democracy does not exist without an informed electorate. So the banning and the effective banning across the EU means the EU is no longer democratic in my eyes. And how does working uh, at RT compare to the other networks that you've worked at? Because you've been at BB, the BBC, Al Jazeera. Well, I, I know that um, <laughs> at the BBC, uh, our source, David Kelly, was the government scientist who exposed the WMD, which of course now WMD is again in the news on RT and in the global south, but not in NATO nation media because of the suspected biowarfare labs after Victoria Newland's uh, uh, spe speech in Congress uh, in the past 48 hours or so. There, the director general and myself, we, we had to leave. And um, obviously, it was very strict that way. At Al Jazeera Arabic, we were named Al-Qaeda Al uh, before the new Al Jazeera, which is kind of much more friendly to uh, NATO liberalism and, or, you know, the kind of BBC and Al Qaeda, style. I gotta say, they're also friendly, friendlier to Al Qaeda in <laughs> Syria. I have yeah. to say, they in are. Syria, you're right, exactly. Um, so, uh, but as I was the first ever employee at Al Jazeera, uh, soon they must have realized, hang on a minute, this isn't the the script. Uh, Al Jazeera Arabic at that time, you know, they they killed our correspondents in uh, Baghdad and in Afghanistan and. Uh, I, I saw the other day a report on Al Jazeera going, Russia's bombed the TV tower. 
Uh, Russia said it was for used for uh, SIGINT intelligence or something, but it obviously broadcast programs. And Al Jazeera was saying, this is the first time a TV tower has been destroyed in war, forgetting not only Belgrade TV during the Yugoslav war when Christian Amanpour is rumored, complete allegations. I mean, I, these, these are scurrilous rumors. I'm sure she denied, but when she was married to uh, James Rubin, uh, the top uh, U.S. diplomat, she walked into that Belgrade TV tower, did a live for CNN, walked out, and that uh, that studio was destroyed. I don't know what happened to the makeup artists and the um, wow. and the security and so on. But you know, TV towers are obviously targeted noticeably by NATO uh, in Baghdad and in uh, Kabul. And can you talk? Can you elaborate more on why you had to leave the BBC and what happened? Well, I mean, the, the BBC. I mean, the BBC has a long history. It's in my lifetime lost two director generals, one over a documentary about a spy satellite uh, during uh, this was before the Berlin Wall fell, and obviously the intense pressure led to you know it's the director general of the BBC. That's everything: drama, natural history, all over the fact that a source was telling us there were no weapons of mass destruction and the dossier was being sexed up at the time. And then he was found dead in the woods. So, uh, you know, basically there was no point in the BBC after that, one could argue. What is the point? At CNN, I mean, I was I was a junior, really, because I, I was looking for jobs after, after the BBC. And uh, obviously um, you, you couldn't use the word Palestine. Then at Press TV, that's banned in this country completely, the Iranian state channel. CGTN, the Chinese state channel, banned from broadcasting in this country. And, and I think one of the nicest things um, in these very tough times, because there's no doubt that uh, RT gives both sides of the argument, which means that sometimes you watch it, it's not, it's not comfortable viewing, nor should media ever be comfortable viewing, arguably, because you are looking at both sides. So it's very difficult. But this quote from Chomsky, which someone put on, I should really credit, saying, it is easy to condemn the crimes of official enemies, but it's a basic ethical principle that first and foremost, we should hold to account those governments for which we share direct political and moral responsibility. Toughest thing at the moment, when you see an invasion, which clearly, according to the UN Secretary General, violates the charter, is uh, to uh, continue to give and provide context amidst accusations and allegations of war crimes, supreme war crimes like that. And of course, the bio-warfare news in the past 48 hours may uh, already start the Russians and certainly the Chinese uh, foreign ministry spokesperson so quick to talk about them urgently because what were the United States, what, what were they doing with these bio-warfare labs on Russia's borders? Does that mean that Russia wasn't breaking the charter because it was self-defense? Just to explain that for people who aren't familiar, Victoria Nuland, a top U.S. official, was in Congress and asked by Marco Rubio if they are if there are biological weapons labs inside of Ukraine. And Nuland said that there are biological research labs going on. She didn't specify warfare, but people have interpreted it that way. And then they talked about the possibility of Russia essentially uh, attacking those labs uh, and using them, weaponizing them to... Uh, commit atrocities. And this has fueled speculation about what the U.S. is funding inside of Ukraine. And there's a lot of uncertainty, but it does. Uh, Russia, I think, will probably use this as uh, to help bolster its allegations that Ukraine was involved in nefarious activities. But the, this is the problem with war is we don't 
it's very so much is speculative and we just do not know what we don't know as donald rumsfeld said what do you think the the most important thing to do now if if our goal is ending the war uh, is is actually diplomacy and peace what do you think the most important thing for the media to do right now is well i mean coming off what aaron said is how difficult is it uh, to to get free information you know in in previous wars uh, i know the reporters from mainstream so called mainstream uh, nato media are in situ on the Ukrainian side. But even, even the most, uh, do I use the word stupid, uh, reporters in, in situ start to hear things that don't tally with official narratives over time. We've seen this before in different places when they themselves say, hang on a minute, but the official line from Reuters coming from London or Washington is this, and it's not quite matching up. Are the humanitarian corridors really being bombed by the Russians? Was this children's hospital really bombed in Mariupol? Uh, maybe we will start to very slowly get these things. But of course, by that time, uh, any kind of misinformation is already out there. Uh, the important thing, I suppose, for journalists uh, now is just to remember what a, what a journalist is. And it uh, is uh, to uh, have extreme skepticism of uh, imperial power narratives at the moment. It's uncomfortable. Uh, right now, if people think uh, uh, one Im immediately has to condemn imperial invasions of great powers, Che Guevara didn't resign uh, his uh, support for the Soviet Union after the crushing of the workers' uh, uh, rights demonstrations and so on in Hungary. And uh, Picasso didn't leave the Communist Party after the crushing of workers' revolts in Czechoslovakia. There is something much deeper about this conflict. And um, I know you both talked about John Mersheimer from Chicago University's view that this constant uh, prodding of uh, not just Russia, but China and the global South was bound to erupt in something. The worrying thing is what Mersheimer said was we might end up in uh, the destruction of Ukraine, a destruction of Ukraine similar to the firebombing of, um, of Tokyo, which was worse in numbers of casualties and deaths than Nagasaki or Hiroshima. So what we're looking at is a massive humanitarian catastrophe. I mean, I, yesterday's show, the most recent going underground, uh, we had another Chicago professor telling us it, it, it's a hideous invasion. It could be hideous casualties. And I had to say, could it possibly be as hideous as the 377,000 killed in Yemen by British and US arms? Could it be as hideous a uh, military adventure as the killing, wounding or displacing of tens of millions after the Iraq war and so on? That's the question. Is it going to be as bad as that in just numerical terms? It's, uh, it's tough because the problem is, especially during a war, all sides will spread propaganda. I think it's been established that the Ukrainian side has spread propaganda, the ghost of Kiev, the uh, anti-aircraft missile that hit an apartment building in, in Kiev that they blamed on a, a Russian missile, which turned out to be false. But then, of course, Russia said false things too. And even... Putin's claims about WMDs inside Ukraine, for all we know, that could be just, just as much of a lie as George Bush's lie was about Iraq WMDs in Iraq. And this is why it's difficult to comment on the war as it unfolds. It but is strange as WMD again. It is strange. But then to see Victoria Newland and people can watch it, her testimony uh, to Rubio in Congress, um, if, if they were just harmless biological labs, why were they afraid? Why are they so afraid that they'll be in the hands of the Russian army? 
that's a fair question. That's a fair question. And Newland did look, I mean, to the extent we can judge people based on body language, and there's a limitation to that. But <laughs> she did look pretty uncomfortable when she when she was asked the question. And but but look, it could also just it actually could be benign. We don't know. That's the problem. There is this atmosphere right now that the Russians will have their hands on these biological labs. Yes, yes, yes. We'll see. I want to ask you about Russophobia. Uh, concert pianists being forced to resign from their positions, even if they condemn the war in Ukraine just because they're Russian. Uh, the internet, uh, FIFA banning Russia, of course, not banning the U.S. for the Iraq war or Saudi Arabia for Yemen, Russian restaurants being attacked. Inside the UK, I've noticed the, 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 the UK government of all the US allies seems particularly keen to always get on board with demonizing Russia for everything. I'm, I'm wondering just your experience personally with, with Russophobia so far, how you as a broadcaster on a Russian-backed network have experienced that. Yeah, it's it's always always been there. Obviously, I'm I'm not Russian, but Russian friends of mine say they yeah. I mean, they their children at school have to say they're Swiss and things like that. Um, shades of the First World War and the uh, the booing of Dashwood dogs uh, in the street. This, this this goes on. It's the kind of um, phobia, arguably, one has uh, in uh, mainstream uh, elites of uh, communists or of uh, so many other uh, types of people, isn't it? It happened to LGBTQ plus people uh, up until the ending of uh, a clause here that banned the promotion of, of gay people. I mean, uh, yeah, it is um, horrific. It is, um, I mean, what, what can one say? I mean, it's been said so much, the, ba the banning of, you know, infamously, uh, people may look down on Dostoevsky. Uh, it's a uh, it's a kind of uh, a kind of madness uh, that that comes in, but that shows it is symptomatic of the fact this is a global conflict now. India has not sided with Washington, Pakistan has not sided with Washington, uh, Saudi Arabia and the UAE, countries that uh, have been armed to the teeth to kill in Yemen, not taking Biden's call in the forty eight hours previous 48 hours, presumably about what uh, Jen Psaki calls energy security, pumping more oil so that they lose more money, um, going over to Venezuela and suddenly seemingly recognizing uh, Nicolas Maduro as the true leader of the country with the richest uh, oil reserves on the planet, uh, JCPOA uh, changing its um, uh, dimensions as regards Iran. Uh, we're seeing, and of course, this is what uh, those who condemn what Vladimir Putin did in Ukraine, some of them may see this as uh, so multidimensional in terms of its effect on the power of the dollar. And this is starting to be talked about as a, as a global conflict really, really based around the end of US Treasury supremacy, whether you, uh, whether you support the uh, killing and, and displacing of uh, hundreds of thousands of men, women and children is another matter. One thing uh, I've noticed is still there's such a huge amnesia in the Western media about the war that's been going on in Ukraine for the last eight years that for millions of people inside Ukraine, uh, hundreds of thousands of refugees, over 13,000 people who have died. This war did not start when Putin invaded. It started when there was a coup backed by the U.S. in 2014. And then the coup government essentially waged war on the Russian speaking population who took up arms with Russia's support. And that's been this war in the Donbass 
as I said, over 13,000 dead, many refugees. And it's like you turn on U.S. media and that war just does not exist. You've covered that war. Uh, you've what are your impressions of it? And do you think had that war been stopped, had Ukraine been willing to take seriously the Minsk Accords that were signed back in 2015, that essentially the bargain was the Donbass demilitarizes, Russia withdraws its support, and in, in exchange, these Russian-speaking areas get autonomy. If that had been respected by Washington and by, and by Kiev, do you think that this uh, Putin invasion of Ukraine could have been avoided? And to hear the rest of the interview, please go to usefulidiots.substack.com. That was great. That was awesome. Good to hear from Afshin, who the host of Going Underground is facing uh, attempts right now to put his network permanently underground by taking it off the airwaves. And so interesting to hear his perspective on what that's like. Yeah. And he was not shy to uh, call the invasion an invasion. No. Yeah. No, of course not. Yeah. 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 And he's, as we talked about on a show, he's hosted people very critical of the invasion. And that doesn't align well with the caricature that we're supposed to believe about RT and people who go on that network and people who work for it. Right. It's a really fun time doing the show for you guys. And thank you for all your support. And please support us if you can at usefulidiots.substack.com. And we want to thank you for tuning in to Useful Idiots. Please rate and review us, of course, on uh, wherever you listen to your podcasts. Subscribe at usefulidiots.substack.com. Subscribe to our YouTube channel at youtube.com slash usefulidiots. Check us out on Monday mornings at youtube.com slash usefulidiots, where we do a live stream where we react to the Sunday morning shows that we watch that you don't have to. That's at 10 a.m. on Mondays. Uh, then at 11 a.m. on Mondays, we do a call-in show. Uh, call-in, and you can download the uh, app for free on your phone. Also, if you want to have um, the audio the podcast version of our Monday mornings. You get that uh, if you subscribe, usefulidiots.substack.com. You also get extended interviews, bonus content, ad-free content. So it's a great time for all. And we'll see you next week. Yep. Hello. Thank you so much for listening to and watching Useful Idiots. For full episodes and extended interviews, please subscribe at usefulidiots.substack.com. You can subscribe on YouTube at youtube.com slash usefulidiots for clips, live streams, and full episodes. Also, subscribe to us wherever you find your podcast. Follow us on Twitter at usefulidiotpod and use the hashtag usefulidiotspod. Join us Mondays at 10 a.m. for the Useful Idiots Monday Morning Show, where we discuss the Sunday morning news shows so you don't have to watch them. 